Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. You've probably heard of Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's on TV. He's hosted Cosmos. He has a podcast called Star Talk. He's great. You might have also heard of Phil Plate, the astronomer behind a pretty popular bad astronomy blog. He's not as popular as Tyson, but he's still pretty well known. And both of these guys are held up as symbols of the fields of astrophysics and astronomy, respectively. When we imagine a scientist in their field, we imagine those guys. We think of Tyson, we think of Plate. Imagine for a moment if they hated each other. Imagine if Neil deGrasse Tyson and Phil Plate worked their very hardest to sabotage each other at every opportunity. Imagine if they tried to undercut each other's works, brooded about the accomplishments of the other, worried that the other guy might be more popular, and smeared each other in the press. Wouldn't it be ridiculous to have two high-profile scientists hating each other, smearing each other, and trying to undercut each other, and spending just massive amounts of mental and emotional energy on a personal vendetta? That'd be undignified. We would wonder what was wrong with them. They're famous. They're doing interesting research. Why are they spending so much time on personal, petty jealousy? Well, that's exactly what happened in the latter half of the 1800s, during what is now called the Bone Wars. Paleontology was a new field. Dinosaurs and prehistoric animals, they'd only recently been unearthed. Evolution was a new idea. And a lot of what we know about today, about dinosaurs, about prehistoric animals, about plesiosaurs, about megafauna, that was all coming into focus. And amidst all this amazing discovery was a petty personal feud between two of paleontology's most prominent scientists, Edward Drinker Cope and Otniel Charles Marsh. In one corner. We have Edward Drinker Cope. He was a Quaker from Philadelphia and very much an autodidact, by the way. Autodidact, one of the best words ever. Cope, he was a prodigy. He published his first paper at 19, and when he was very young, he helped assemble a hadrosaur skeleton. It was the first mounted and displayed dinosaur in the United States. In another corner, we have Otniel Charles Marsh, who is more of your traditional gentleman academic type. Uh, he was a Yale man, and really America's first ever official professor of paleontology. Uh, these two guys, when they first met, they were friends, or at least they were cordial with each other. They met in Berlin, of all places, and initially they were quite friendly. Marsh was in his early 30s at that time, but he had only published two papers. But Cope, Cope, he was a little under 10 years younger, and he had several credits to his name. Marsh was impressed with him. In Berlin, these guys, they talked, they stayed together, they saw the sites, they discussed paleontology, and they seemed to act like normal people who have similar interests, rather than the bitter rivals that they would become. Back in the States, they continued to hang out, and Cope let Marsh see the quarry where those hadrosaur bones that he had assembled had been discovered. It's like, we have this dinosaur, it's mounted, people come to see it. Here's a quarry where we found it. Wouldn't you like to take a look? Now, Marsh, in sort of a jerk move, took the quarry owners aside and said, Hey, if you guys find any more bones here, send them my way. Send them to Yale. Now, Cope was understandably annoyed when he found out that Marsh, after seeing his special bone quarry, was essentially attempting to buy out the fossils in the quarry from underneath him. Like, literally. 
There were fossils underneath them, and Marsh was trying to buy them. But that wasn't what really, really got these guys to hate each other. That was the start. That was the first salvo. But even after that, they still talked to each other. They were still cordial. They were still friendly. No, what created one of the biggest rivalries in the history of science of all time, that was an Elasmosaurus. An Elasmosaurus, which, by the way, is not a dinosaur. It's a gigantic plesiosaur. It had a long neck, a long tail. It looked kind of like a sauropod with flippers, despite being, I cannot stress this enough, not actually a dinosaur. Plesiosaurs are not dinosaurs. They are plesiosaurs. By the way, pterosaurs, also not dinosaurs. Demetrodon, not a dinosaur. Anyway, they had an elasmosaur skeleton. Cope, he found it, he'd assembled it, he'd published his findings, and he'd given it a short, thick neck and a long, flowing, snake-like tail. Marsh took a look at the skeleton and informed Cope that he had put the head on the opposite side of the creature. Uh, Plesiosaurs shouldn't have a short, thick neck and a long, snake-like tail. It should have a long, snake-like neck and a shorter, thick tail, like for steering in water, where Plesiosaurs lived. Cope claimed that, no, it's fine, and Marsh was like, uh, no, dude, you did. That long, snaky thing is a neck. Well, okay, maybe they didn't say it quite like this, but you get the idea. To resolve their dispute about where the head should go on the plesiosaur, these two guys brought in Joseph Lady, a prominent scientist who had been something of a mentor to Cope some years earlier. Lady, who is older and a bit more respected than these guys, and is kind of acting sort of as a referee here, he looks at the skeleton, and he looks at Cope's work, and he confirms that yes, indeed, he had literally assembled the elasmosaur, ass backwards. Cope was furious. He was humiliated. He attempted to buy up all of the journals that highlighted his mistake, but to no avail. Marsh had humiliated him. Marsh later wrote that, quote, His vanity received a shock from which it has never recovered, and he has since been my bitter enemy. Yes, indeed. After this, these two men, they wouldn't have a single kind word for each other. In 1870, Marsh assembled a group of guys from Yale to dress up like science cowboys and go hunt for bones. He hired Buffalo Bill, yes, that Buffalo Bill, as a guide, and Marsh and his crew had their exploits in the West reported on and maybe a tiny little bit embellished in Harper's. People on a fairly regular basis got to read about how an intrepid bunch of paleontologists and Yale men were out there in the American West cowboying it up and rustling bones. Cope, meanwhile, is sitting at home and reading all about how the guy who tried to take his hadrosaur quarry away and the guy who pointed out his elasmosaur mistake was out cowboying it up in the West. He's in Harper's. People are loving it. His fun adventures are being published all the time, and I imagine that Cope was just a tiny bit jealous. Marsh was associated with Yale. Cope's Philadelphia Academy didn't really have the resources that Yale did, and he wasn't exactly able to get the kind of money together to fund an expedition headed up by Buffalo Bill and published in Harper's. But Cope did scrape together the means to head out west. Uh, when he did, it did not go well. The guy who was supposed to be his guide ditched him, he wasn't as well-funded as Marsh, and Cope, being a devout Quaker, refused to carry a gun, much to the chagrin of many of the people he tried to work with. This was just a little after the Battle of Little Bighorn, 
and relations between the U.S. and Native Americans were not at their best. That's putting it mildly. Other members of his expedition thought that it was insane that Cope was willing to travel and venture into potentially hostile Native American territory without guns or a military escort of any kind. But he was an obstinate guy, and his Quaker absolutism won out. But Cope was out there, and he was digging. Now, this didn't please Marsh one bit. Marsh really wanted to be something of a dinosaur bone monopolist. This is the late 1800s. Everyone has a monopoly. Why not a monopoly with dinosaur bones? Marsh tried to keep tabs on Cope, employing what was basically a spy network to see what his competition was doing. And I can't stress how strange that would be today. Imagine if my alma mater, the University of Oregon, were to send spies over to the research labs of the University of Washington to see what they were up to. That would be... that would be weird. Academics and scientists, they, they don't do that today. But the two men, they're digging, they're out there, in the West, and the phrase I've kept coming upon in various sources about this topic is taxonomic carpet bombing. Each guy wanted to be the one who discovered more species, so they were publishing their findings as fast and as furiously as they possibly could. They also attempted to discredit their opponents at every opportunity. They were not above, for instance, backdating their findings so it looked like they, in fact, had discovered a species first. So, hypothetically, Cope could say, hey, I discovered this species on, you know, November 1st, 1870, and Marsh could say, nope, nope, I discovered it first on October 12th, 1870. Yeah, they did that. Again, imagine if, like, scientists say did that. People would resign from their college things about that. <sighs> What's more, both of the guys, quote-unquote, discovered the same species multiple times, sometimes claiming that a new skeleton of a known species was, in fact, a whole new species. The most notorious example of this was, oh my god, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Uintitherium robustum, a prehistoric mammal. You've probably seen it before. It's that one megafauna that looks kind of like a rhino, hippo, elephant thing. It had horns, kind of, and a very small brain. Uh, anyway, Deuintitherium got passed off as several different new species by Cope and Marsh. So these guys, if not knowingly committing outright scientific fraud in an attempt to outdo each other, they were at least not looking too hard at the bones they find and kind of committing fraud in a nodding, winking way just so they could add new species to their tally. What's especially funny about the Uintitherium, which Cope and Marsh both claimed to have discovered, quote-unquote, multiple times, is that neither of them were actually the first ones to find it. Joseph Leidy, remember, the guy who uh, mentored Cope and who checked his work on the elasmosaur bones? That guy? He found it before either of them did. Leidy, for his part, though, uh, thought that these two guys were disgraceful. He thought that what they were doing was shoddy, it was fast work, it was motivated by a mutual vendetta, and he didn't want to have anything to do with it. Good for him. Now, this is as good a time as any to talk about two things I want to make fairly clear. The first is that, while researching this episode, I really wanted to try to find something about how Cope and Marsh were ideological enemies. Like how they had vastly differing worldviews, or theories about dinosaurs and prehistoric animals that just didn't work together, uh, or that they represented different, towering, scientific schools of thought. But no. The overall impression is that these guys just plain hated each other, and that was pretty much it. 
The story of the Bone Wars is the story of human beings being jealous and petty even in the face of some of the most amazing scientific discoveries of all time. The other thing that I want to emphasize is that despite being sometimes pretty terrible scientists, like putting the heads on the wrong end of a plesiosaur and trying to pass off a single type of prehistoric mammalian megafauna as, in fact, multiple megafauna, these guys were not hacks. Cope and Marsh were both brilliant, and they did make some very real contributions to paleontology. For instance, Marsh was pretty secretive about his bone collection, uh, because they were his secret special bones, and he wanted to be a bone monopolist. But one person that he did let see it was Thomas Henry Huxley. He was an early advocate for evolution, and known as Darwin's Bulldog, which is one of the best nicknames ever. Huxley was amazed by Marsh's collection that includes specimens such as toothed birds, we do not have toothed birds anymore, and a fairly unbroken chain of horse ancestors, skeletons that showed the gradual evolution of the animal from being a small little animal with three toes to the much larger modern animal with a single hoof. Huxley said to Marsh, You are a conjurer. You produce whatever I ask. Best compliment ever. Reportedly, Darwin himself was also impressed when he heard about Marsh's finds from the other side of the pond. So these guys, they're very smart scientists, but they're letting their own personal hatred get in the way of good work. In 1877, the stakes went up. There was a school teacher in Colorado. His name was Arthur Lakes. He was out hiking one day, and by chance, because, you know, he's in Colorado, lots of exposed rock around, he found a gigantic cache of bones. He sent a letter to Marsh about it. Marsh, after all, was a famous paleontologist who'd adventured with Buffalo Bill and had his exploits outlined in Harper's. But Marsh was a little slow to reply. So Lakes, he also sent word to Cope about it. And some bones. Later on, Lakes got a reply from Marsh, who told Lakes, basically, here's a hundred bucks, don't tell anybody about these bones. And... And then Lake sent a letter to Cope saying, essentially, Hey, you know those amazing prehistoric bones that I sent you? Well, sorry, I just got word from your more famous rival, and he's paid me for exclusive info about them on where I found them, so could you send those bones along to him? Thanks. And I imagine that Cope was furious and felt more than a little insulted. But he was about to get some good news. He got another letter, this time from Colorado, from a man who reported finding gigantic bones in Wyoming. This was in a place called Como Bluff. These bones, described to Cope, were like nothing that anyone had ever seen before. They were huge. We're talking about bones that are measured in feet, not inches. We're talking about the kind of massive, towering bones beyond human scale that now dwarf the visitors of natural history museums. The bones in Como Bluff would turn out to be some of the most well-known dinosaurs of the Jurassic. Allosaurus, Stegosaurus, and, maybe most incredible of all, the gigantic herbivore Apatosaurus. Cope was, of course, interested. But word of the Como Bluff and its amazing bones reached Marsh too. He was also interested. Marsh quickly set up operations there. At Como Bluff, the two teams of excavators, because remember, they're leading teams, it's not like they're out there digging by themselves, they resort to activities such as 
stealing one another's bones, spying, sabotage. At one point, there was a rock fight, as in rival teams of science guys started throwing rocks at each other over dinosaur bones. Cope and Marsh, they forced their teams to dig through the winter, which is insane. Uh, I have never been to Colorado, but I have friends there. I am told that winters there are not fun. They are not something that you want to be outdoors in. They are not somewhere where you want to be in a quarry surrounded by cold rocks with a pickaxe in your hand while the wind is blowing around you. But that is what they did. They hated each other so much. They wanted to outdo each other so much that each man forced their team to endure the punishing Colorado winter just so they could be the guy with the most bones. And, even more extremely, both teams ended up destroying their quarries and the fossils they couldn't take with them. There were a lot of bones that they were unable to ship. And, instead of leaving them there, instead of allowing other paleontologists to find them, they destroyed them. They blew them up. If Cope couldn't have them, if Marsh couldn't have them, they would make sure that no one could. This is where I find their actions to be especially egregious. They weren't just damaging each other. By blowing up these bones, blowing up their quarries, filling in a lot of their dig sites, they were also damaging the future of the field that they worked in. Just so they could undercut each other. Just so one team wouldn't find a rival team's bones just kind of sitting out there in the rocks of Colorado. In the 1880s, the two men's paths diverged. Marsh was a Yale man, he was pretty well known, and he got himself a pretty good position. He became part of the U.S. Geological Survey, heading up their paleontology department. Uh, but Cope? Cope was not so lucky. Cope invested a great deal of money in what he hoped would be a boom, a speculative New Mexico mining venture. If you ever find yourself in the United States in the late 1800s, I'd recommend against investing in speculative mining ventures. They don't ever seem to go well. This little bit of financial speculation on Cope's part almost ruined him. Marsh, at the USGS, enacted a policy that he intended to use to take even more from Cope. He wanted Cope's fossils. Using his new power at the government agency, Marsh decreed that any fossils that had been excavated with federal funding, they had to be turned over to the Smithsonian. He knew that Cope had accepted some funding from the feds, so this would be a great way for Marsh to abuse his power and steal his rival's dinosaur bones. Unfortunately for Marsh, fortunately for Cope, Cope had kept his receipts and was able to demonstrate that he'd gotten quite a few of his fossils with only private funding. Marsh was not able to seize nearly as much as he'd hoped. Still, Cope was low. He had almost nothing, and he was not able to secure a paying position at any kind of institution. He was alone in an apartment filled with old bones. At this point, Cope had nothing but his hate, and he decided to bust out what he called his Martiana, a collection of dirt on his rival. He got a hold of a freelance journalist, and together they assembled a dramatic hatchet job for the New York Herald that accused Marsh, a famous paleontologist now at the USGS, of corruption, of fraud, of plagiarism, and of general bad science for the past 20 years. Marsh responded with a press piece of his own, calling Cope a thief and a liar. And again, 
Imagine if this were to happen today. Imagine if Phil Plate wrote a thing for Slate where he called Neil deGrasse Tyson a plagiarist. This just isn't done anymore. The accusations in the Herald were a sensation. Uh, people talked about it, people buzzed about it, but it all blew over pretty quickly. Except some Washington politicians, they did want to use the whole thing as an excuse to cut funding for the USGS. Imagine that. Politicians looking for an excuse to cut science funding. Marsh was brought before Congress to ostensibly answer for all of the terrible things that had been said about him in the papers, and it turned into just a general attack on Marsh. In particular, one congressman pointed out to Marsh that he'd written a book about birds with teeth and wondered, does the American government really need books about birds with teeth? So the U.S. Congress, yes, long and storied history of attacking science and research, apparently. At the end of these hearings that were, arguably, a result of Cope's smear campaign, the USGS's budget was halved. Part of those cuts were that Marsh's Department of Paleontology was eliminated. He was suddenly unemployed. But that wasn't all. Remember that a bit earlier, Marsh had enacted policy that all the bones excavated with funds from the USGS were to be handed over to the Smithsonian? Remember that? That policy that he enacted? Well, Marsh himself had accepted quite a bit of money from the USGS, and unlike Cope, he didn't have documentation saying otherwise. After he lost his job with the government, the government took all of his fossils, including the birds with teeth. He had to ask Yale for a salary. Marsh and Cope, two rivals who had discovered more than the vast majority of humans ever do in their lives, were both now down and out because of their petty feud. In 1897, Cope was wasting away. He was sick, and at this point, his wife had left him. He was brooding, alone, in an apartment filled with old bones, and dealing with his pain by self-medicating with morphine and belladonna. One small bright spot is that during these last few days of Cope's life, he got a visit from a young artist named Charles Knight. Charles Knight wanted to bring dinosaurs to life. He wanted to paint them. Cope worked with him to create incredible images. And even though Knight's paintings are painfully inaccurate now, they are aesthetically amazing. And for years, they were the definitive images of dinosaurs. I've used one to illustrate this show at interestingtimespodcast.com, and there's a link to more of his work on the site. Go look at it. Before Knight left, Cope asked the young man to help him hide his notebooks. Even on death's door, Cope was still filled with paranoia. Edward Drinker Cope died a few days later. We're not sure of what. He was 56 years old. He donated his body to science, and, in particular, asked that his brain be measured so he could prove that it was bigger than Marsh's. Otniel Charles Marsh died two years later of pneumonia. He was 68, and he had all $186 in his bank account when he succumbed. He did not take Cope up on the brain-measuring competition. Together, these two bitter enemies discovered over 130 extinct species. They gathered amazing evidence of evolution and laid a foundation for modern paleontology. Yet, both of them seem to have been consumed by irrational hatred. I've looked at plenty of dinosaur bones and other fossils in natural history museums. They are wondrous things to behold. And if you look around, you'll see people suddenly not talking, suddenly not distracted, suddenly looking up. Looking up at something that shows how old the world is, how large the world is, how small we are in comparison to all of that. 
I am sure that both Cope and Marsh experienced a great deal of that wonder. I am sure that they had their moments of silent contemplation and reverence for the grand history that they unearthed when they found a gigantic bone wedged into the red rocks of Colorado. And it's tragic that, in the face of all that discovery, in the face of all that newness, in the face of all that wonder, they never learned how to set aside their personal differences and bring that wonder to future generations together. One little bit of housekeeping that I wanted to do was thank the people who designed our website and our logo. Uh, Upswept Creative is a firm in Portland, Oregon. They do photography, they do web design, they do logo design, they do all kinds of branding. They are amazing. And you should check them out at upswepcreative.com. By the way, this is not me reading an ad. Uh, I am not getting paid to say this at all. Uh, this is me thanking Upswept for their amazing work. We have that wonderful logo with the exclamation point because of them. Uh, also, I want to emphasize that we are on iTunes. Please search for us on iTunes. When you find us, give us a rating. Give us a review. Leave a comment. It helps other people discover the show. That would be extraordinarily handy. We can also be found at interestingtimespodcast.com, where we have links about things that I talk about in the show. Follow me on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Also like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert. See you next week.